The reading for today is 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 14. Now when the king was settled in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, So now I am living in the house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Are you the one to build me the house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I bought the people out from Israel, from Egypt, to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a prince over my people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I have appointed a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. All evildoers shall afflict no more on them as they did formerly. For the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declared to you that the Lord shall be make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offsprings after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne for his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tommy. Are you all really hungry to be moving into the New Testament next week? <laughs> Jane said she, I, I have forced her this summer to become familiar with more of the text. Um, today's actually was, is a very important text in terms of our lineage and the Davidic covenant. This is the place where it actually occurs. And I'm not sure that anybody can give a better children's message than Jane. I almost feel like I don't want to preach because <laughs> she said what, a lot of what I'm going to say, but a whole lot better. So, I'll bear with me. Lord God, this is your word to us. Um, by your spirit, move in our imaginations and our hearts that we would know what you have for all of us today. In Jesus' name and to his glory, amen. <coughs> oh, I thoroughly enjoy reading travel magazines. And I recently read about how when you are experiencing the fume-filled, heavy, hot air of Istanbul, you can escape by taking a tour of a below-ground site called the Great Palace Mosaic. Has anybody else heard about this place? The Great Palace Mosaic. Well, evidently it's near the famed Blue Mosque, 
and you can access it off a little street via some stairs that are sandwiched in between a shop and, I think, a train platform. Well, Mosaic Works may come and they may go, but this one is a whopping 20,000 square feet with no fewer than 80 million tiles in place. I want to go see this place. (laughs) Well, it it was in the mid-500s when Emperor Justinian was, well, he was emperor. This was the courtyard to his palace. And evidently, on the mosaic, you know, there are just lavish scenes of mythical, you know, stories from mythology and nature and courtly love and all that kind of thing. But get this, only one quarter of this mosaic has been uncovered because there's development on top of it. Okay, 80 80 million tiles. What was somebody thinking? I mean, what must the rest of the palace have looked like if this was just the courtyard? (laughs) Well, what what it must have looked like was something probably on the scale that King David had in mind when he said, I'm going to build a house for the ark. And you all do remember, as Jane told us again, that the ark is this gold box that has the ten tablets and a little couple jars of manna. But more importantly, the ark was thought at that time to be the very place where God resided. At this time in history, there was no sense that God was anywhere in us and everywhere. God resided in the ark. Well, the setting for today's scripture is that the ark is being moved to Jerusalem. And the city was going wild as the ark comes in. Uh, The bands, soldiers, horses, 30,000 people along the parade route. And then there's King David, much to the mortification of his wife, dancing wildly before the ark, wearing nothing but a loincloth. Okay. Well, parties being what there are, there is always the morning after. And on one particular morning, David has an idea. He's king. He can have grand ideas if he wants to. He's going to build a building to house the ark. And so David asks his court counselor what he thinks. You know, David lives in a nice cedar house, but God's living in a box, in a tent. And tents are the lowest uh, structure of habitation. I mean, they're the... They're where the nomads live, for goodness sakes, and that's no place for God. The Shekinah, the very presence of God, right there in a tent. So David's first counselor says, David, sounds like a good idea. Go for it. You're God's beloved one. I'm sure that, you know, you've got it right on. And David sleeps that night with visions of blueprints dancing in his head. Nathan sleeps too, but not well. God comes to him in a dream and And he has some harsh words. He says, you know, something to the effect of David. This is what I want you to pass on to David. You're not the one to figure out whether I need a temple. I have been traveling alongside my people in an ark, living in a tent since I took you out of Egypt. At any time have I said I wanted a house. You boys are missing the point. I'm the one who decides about the house thing, and this is what I have to say. Chill out. David, I've given you a vocation And it doesn't involve being a building contractor. I don't know if my lack of reverence is going to get me fired or not. Anyway, God says, I plan to give my people Israel a land of their own, and I will protect them. There will be generations to follow you that can build me a house. But from you, from you will come the eternal one, 
who will bless all the generations. And even if you and your sons and your daughters in a hundred future generations foul up, this promise is unconditional and everlasting. So Nathan gets up the next morning, reports his vision to David. David is shocked. He has to go pray before the ark and talk to God for a while. Lord, you mean my role is not to be a temple builder, but to be a foundation of a people through whom you will bless the world? Yep. So what has just happened here is what scholars call the making of the Davidic covenant. We have the Abrahamic covenant, and then we have the Davidic covenant. The promise that David, that God will establish a kingdom to endure forever out of David's lineage. And this kingdom won't depend on David or anybody else doing anything. And it certainly doesn't have to do with building a temple. So how do we hear this story? Suppose that David was uh, stunned when he was rebuked in his thoughtfulness. You're right, Jane, that does hurt our feelings. Well, one of the things that struck me this week when I was thinking about this sermon was that David was a king, yes, but in many ways he is every man and every woman too. And that's why he's so appealing and so appalling to us. Every time I tell my husband I'm going to preach on David, he just says, oh no. <laughs> and this guy was, he had his good and he had his bad. I mean, we know his life story from being this unsuspecting little kid out in the pasture, the Goliath killer, the, the brooding warrior, And now he's king at the height of his career. But in today's text, what happens to him happens to all of us. He's confronted by the rude fact that there's something he might want to do, but he can't. Well, he can, but he isn't supposed to. And if he tries, it's probably not going to go anywhere. I mean, it's sort of like, okay... You're in high school, you worked really hard, you got the grades, you've got super SAT scores, you've got references at the wazoo, but Stanford University didn't accept you. Or it's like he loved a woman with everything he had, he just turned himself inside out for her, and she said, you know what, I don't think you're the one. Or that he was like maybe the most on-time and doggedly persistent advocate for social justice, but there's nobody who will follow. You know, Scripture reports that David responded to God with praise for God's covenant promise. But I have to think the first that David smarted a little bit. And only after a while was he able to say, okay, you're right, God. Maybe building a temple wasn't what you had in mind for me. Maybe he got a little bit ahead of God and thought too much about the oughts of life and didn't listen to the Spirit speak to him. Have I ever told you the story about when I was a chaplain at Primary Children's one night and my partner didn't show up? Forgive me if I had. I must have had 15 kids and families to go see, and I charted out what floor they were on and looked up you know, what I needed to know about them, and I made my plan, and I moved right out the door. got about 15 feet from the door, and... The voice of God, you know, that thing that goes on inside, said, Catherine, (laughs) don't get ahead of me. Anyway, um, maybe he, maybe David was thinking about the oughts of life, what he needed to do, and got out a little ahead. 
You know, from the time that we're kids, we're encouraged to be guided by high standards and good values, to live up to the, you know, being brave, thrifty, reverent, loyal, clean. I don't know what the other Boy Scout promises are. But we pick our private and public heroes because they're all those things. And we try to incarnate their way of being those things. You know, Parker Palmer is a Quaker theologian, and he's written a book titled, Let Your Life Speak. And he says that what that meant for him was that he was trying to live his life like Martin Luther King Jr., good American Baptist, right? Um, A life of high purpose. And he set the loftiest ideals he could for himself, and for him that meant um, attending Berkeley and growing a beard and protesting. And he said the results were absolutely laughable. He had found a noble way to live his life, but it was a life that wasn't his, a life spent imitating his heroes instead of listening to his heart. My Aunt Phyllis used to say, Catherine, don't live your life from the outside in. Live your life from the inside out. And I've never forgotten that. You know, there are wobbly times in life when, sure, we need to hold on to the superstructure of values and standards and our, our role models and the wise counselor that's given. But as we mature, especially as religious persons, there's something to be said for giving voice to and trusting that inside of us there is already a very wise counselor. Some of you may remember at your baptism that you are promised. The presence of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in you is to work within you, whether you know it or not, to bring you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Well, that's a voice worth listening to. You know, whenever I visit, I'm going to go to the grocery store, I'm always overwhelmed. But in the aisles of Smith's Marketplace these days, there's a variety of absolutely everything from mousetraps to lettuce to salt. And here's a case in point. Scripture admonishes us to be salt, right? But it doesn't say what flavor. Perhaps that determination is up to us. Stay with me here. Many of you have heard the Hasidic tale about Rabbi Zuya, who, when he was an old man, said, In the coming world, they will not ask me, Why were you not Moses? They will ask me, Why were you not Zusa? God doesn't ask us individually to conform to some abstract norm or some perfect personality or career ideal. I think God only asks that we honor our created nature, which means our limits as well as our potentials, and not to try to be who we are not. You are already good enough. You are the perfect you. You don't need to be anybody else for God to love you. And if you don't believe me about your own uniqueness, pay attention to a toddler. I have an 18-month-old grandson. He's not going to be shaped into any shape that anybody else wants him to be shaped into. He's going to be his own person. He's going to express his own interests, his own desires, his own likes. You know, we arrive in this world with fresh gifts of ourselves, and then we spend the first half of our lives abandoning those things, uh, learning how to be obedient and good. When I was writing this sermon, 
<clears throat> had an appliance repair man come to the house, and it occurred to me that the rhythm of life is that we find and lose track of those bits of our real selves, kind of like a washing machine cycle. Rinse, wash, spin, drain, rinse, wash, spin. <laughs> it's never a very direct course, is it? Well, we see it in King David's life, and we get to see it in our own. Our selfhood gets all mixed up with the necessary need to know ourselves as capable and acceptable and our labors as productive. And we all make the necessary compromises to, to live in our times, but there's always that companion, always that middle-of-the-night voice that speaks to us. Or if you're like King David, you're lucky enough, there's a Nathan that will speak to you who will say, good idea, but not your call, buddy. I guess that's where this sermon is going, if you wondered about it. It's a call to live your precious life, not someone else's. David, don't, don't build a house and live the life you think that, that I want a king to live. Live the life that I've given you to live. Don't just take notes on what somebody else says all the time, but take notes on what you yourself say. Listen for that inner guidance. We are all known. We are all gifted by God who's available to us. God knows. (laughs) You want to know what you're really supposed to be about? What are the things that delight you? Where are the places that your soul is fed? What do you love to do? Those are the places where God is speaking in you and through you. Well, the route to becoming ourselves is... I mean, it's, it's direct, and it's like that rinse, it's like the whole washing machine, machine cycle, you know. Rinse, wash, spin, tumble, whatever. Nobody knows or owns the piece of his or her life without some harrowing, without some experimenting, without some darkness. I mean, how else would we know light? But we are led to truth as much by our weakness as by our strengths. Nothing is ever lost. No learning, no experience is ever lost on this way. Gandhi said, our lives are an an experiment in truth. From moment to moment, we aren't just making it up as we go along. We are discerning and we are growing. And the Christian version of this is, God isn't finished with any of us. I didn't give you a card today, but if I had, this would be the poem on it. Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I've been dissolved and shaken and worn other people's faces. But now I am home in God. In his book, Parker Palmer suggests that we get to be home in God when we are mindful of four things. And this is where I'll I'll leave you. Mindful of four things. One, that the universe is working together for good. God is still in control, working to the coming kingdom. There is death, yes, but that is part of life. Harmony is more fundamental in our being than warfare. We are not responsible for everything. Chaos is a precondition for creativity, but fear is never the answer. Love is. Love that says the light has come into the world and the darkness will not overcome it. Not in the face of evil at work or a gunman at a grade school or lies masquerading of truth. 
as truth. Darkness will not overcome it. There are 80 million tiles on that floor in the Grand Palace. It's a complete mosaic. Every piece has its own space, its own part to contribute to the whole, and if even one piece is missing, it will be noticed, and the creation will not be the same without it. No two tiles are alike. Some tiles form the edges, some form the scenes, and still others are, you know, so part of the background and others are dazzling. I mean, there are reds and purples and wheat gold and wild blue yonder blues. Some have weathered better than others, but every one of them was needed. And every single one of them was hand-placed by a craftsman into soft wax and primitive cement to be a part of a much greater and more beautiful design. Much greater and more beautiful than each in its own tile dreams could ever imagine. Be your peace.